Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Daniel chapter 2. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known, has made known to you what will be. But as for me... This secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, 
just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, And he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. All right. So we have been clearly studying now the book of Daniel for two weeks. This is the third week. And on that first week, um, we considered the the fact that there were going to be three themes that are going to be playing out throughout the book of Daniel. And that is the impact of his God, which is really, again, the primary one. The impact of his life, and that is as he is relying upon his God. And then the impact of his writing, which again, I stated that we'll look at more when we get to the prophetic portions. And you're saying, well, we're at the prophetic portion now. We're really not. Okay, And, And I want to state that as we go into this, that this passage has prophetic implications and interpretations but that's not the purpose of what's going on. Okay? So the first six, yeah, first six chapters of Daniel is all about the impact that God is having through a life that is consecrated and how he is using Daniel to impact the kingdoms of the world. Okay? And so we're going to talk about this dream in a moment. But the major part of this dream isn't for us to go, ooh, ah, oh, ooh, over prophecy, as it is for, for him to knock Nebuchadnezzar's socks off to show that he is the most powerful and most high God. Now, as we get into that portion, I'll mention again um, in just a few moments that actually you need to read Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, and then Daniel chapter 10, verses 12, all the way to the end of Daniel chapter 12, and then you'll get more understanding of what we're actually going to talk about in Daniel chapter 2. So when we get to the prophetic interpretation of this, you're going to be disappointed. Okay? I'm just going to let you know that I'm, we're going to go through it. We'll talk about it a little bit. Okay? But I reserve the fullest of, of the, the, that till we get to chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then chapter 9, when we start to get into the kings of the south and the kings of the north in chapter 10, chapter 12. It's amazing the stuff 
that God gave to Daniel to write, and that's the impact of his writing that goes even till today, okay? So as exciting as Daniel chapter 2 is, it, it only is a foretaste of what God is going to be giving to Daniel throughout. So we move on then um, into that first chapter where Daniel is then taken as the slave to Babylon, and Daniel has to make a decision of what he, how he's going to respond to all this, but he chooses to be consecrated unto Yahweh, and his life becomes the impact, I believe, upon his friends, and then ultimately upon these Babylonian officials that, that are overseeing him. And so he chooses um, that he doesn't want to eat the king's food, which I believe, again, is because it's offered unto idols, and he doesn't want to become defiled with that. And so um, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah also join him in that aspiration. And so they present to Ashpenaz, or I don't know if it was Ashpenaz at that moment, but the, the one who was over them, the overseer over them, that they allow them to eat only vegetables for, for 10 days and then to give them the test. And so they believe by faith that God is able to do this. And so God clearly does it, okay? And he causes them to look in a manner that is noticeable to everybody else around them that they look better than everybody else, okay? We go in then chapter 2, where, which is, again, during the three years of his training, okay? Um, whether it's at the end part of it, whether it's in the middle of it, you can debate that. It doesn't really matter. The point is that this is going on while they're still teenagers, while they're still young, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings. He is the, he is the world's most powerful man at the time, and he's had troubling dreams. So remember the turbulence of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's had these troubling dreams. He calls in all of his, his wise men, his sorcerers, his, his uh, uh, necromancers and everything, his astrologers. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I want you guys to interpret the dream for me. But I don't believe that you guys can really do that. I think you've been, you've been handing me a line. And so to prove that you really can do what you say you can do, I don't want you just to tell me the interpretation. I also want you to tell me the dream. Well, their response clearly is, <laughs> we can't do that. No man on earth can do that. You tell us the dream, we can interpret it for you. But there's no one except the gods who can tell you what you dreamt. And their place isn't in the flesh with man. So they set it up unknowingly for what God is about to do. And so that's what we saw last week then, how God then worked through Daniel and his friends in order for when they come time to, to kill Daniel, because Daniel's not with the group because he's still in training. So when Arioch comes and he finds Daniel, Daniel answers him with wisdom and understanding and counsel and, um, and asks Arioch in order that he might see the king. Um, and he asks the king for a stay. Again, we're not told how long the stay is. I think it's probably only about a 24-hour stay because the urgency of the decree. Go out and kill them all. And they're killing them all at this moment. So I don't think Daniel's asking for a three-month stay on this thing because what's going to happen on the three months? A king wouldn't give it to him, probably. But the other thing is everybody else is dying. Okay, So I think that the, the urgency of the, the decree is, is such that um, Daniel, by faith, is going to go before Yahweh, and he's going to expect Yahweh to do what only Yahweh can do. And Yahweh did. So, so Daniel goes back. He tells Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what, what the king had stated, that they had this time. And so they prayed together. They prayed to Yahweh. And then he went to sleep. We didn't talk about this last week. But think about it. When did Daniel receive the vision? 
as a dream? Is he sleeping? I don't know about you, but if I thought tomorrow may be my last one, I'm not quite sure whether I'd be going to have a good night's sleep. But they did. So they went to sleep, and Daniel woke up, and he realized that God had given him not only the dream, but not only the interpretation, but also the dream itself. And so he ran immediately to Arioch and said, you know, um, stop killing all the guys. Took, and Arioch takes him before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, can you do this? And Daniel says, well, actually, there's a God in heaven that can. Okay? And he's a revealer of what? Secrets. Do you know how many times the word secret is all the way through this? It's a secret. 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 I almost wonder whether it was a secret from Nebuchadnezzar. Whether almost he didn't know it. You know, they couldn't remember the whole dream. He just knew that it was a troubling dream. And he, so he couldn't tell him what the whole dream was. But as Daniel is recounting the dream, he's thinking what? That's it. That, yeah, that's exactly what I dreamt. I can't believe this. this is amazing. Wow. This is great. And so we saw then how Nebuchadnezzar responds in praise. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. So today we're going to look at more of that angle of it, that Daniel's conversation with Nebuchadnezzar and how he's going to give him then the, um, the interpretation of the dream, that what he saw, okay? And so you can see very clearly that the image there, we'll talk about that in a moment. So first, as we get into Daniel's explanation of it, I think it's important for us to lay the foundation of why. What was the intent of giving Daniel the dream and the interpretation? I'm going to lay that out to you. Chuck just read it. Hopefully you've been reading it. What was the intent? Why did God do this? Okay, you got some blanks on your sermon note sheet. You can kind of, you know, why did God do it? What did it reveal to Nebuchadnezzar? It was a revelation of what? Ah, that's one, but that's number two. That's the second most important. What was the f- most important thing? There's a true God. It's a, a revelation of the true God to Nebuchadnezzar. That Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar immediately and says, I can't do this. Everything that those wise men said, it's true. There's not a man on earth that can do this. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And so the first thing it does is it reveals the existence of who God is. Do you get it? I mean, there's a lot of people in our culture today, think about how applicable this is. There's a lot of people in our culture today who just don't believe what? God exists. And so God is using you to be ready to give an account or reason for the hope, an answer to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that's within you. That as you come to them, and they why do you believe as you believe, your first response ought to be what? Because there's a God in heaven. Because there's a God in heaven. It's the existence of God. You are a walking testimony of the existence of God. And so what God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know right off the bat, think about it, Nebuchadnezzar is not worshiping Yahweh. He's not worshiping the one and only true God. He's worshiping Baal. He's worshiping all these other gods, right? And so God wants him to know that he is the only true God. This, again, parallelism to Joseph. When, when um, I'm sorry, Joseph, but later on, Moses. When Moses goes and he's, and he's doing all the signs and the wonders, why is it that he's doing the signs and the wonders? It's not only that Israel might know that I'm Yahweh, but why else is it? So the Pharaoh might know that I'm Yahweh, because Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. Yahweh says, you're going to find out. So that Egypt would know that he was Yahweh, and that the world might know that he was Yahweh. That 
that God was working through Moses and through Israel in order that the world would know. Well, how do we know that it worked? Well, we read about it today. That's good, John. Yeah, but I'm thinking within that context, at least 40 years later, say it again. Jericho. What happens to Jericho? Rahab. She's a harlot. She's a nobody. She says, we've heard. We heard what your God did. Now, the sad thing is she's the only one in Jericho who what? Believed. Okay? But the fact is that God was doing certain things in order for people to know that he is the one and only true God. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even the most powerful. Now, I don't know where you guys are politically in how you pray. But I know that I'm supposed to pray for kings in all who are in authority. First, First Timothy chapter 2. That's what it states just prior to the fact that where it says that God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of truth. I'm supposed to be praying for all men, for kings and all that are in authority. Why? So that they can be saved. I'm supposed to be involved in it. God desires for President Biden to be saved. God desires for Vice President Harris to be saved. God desires for Judge Sotomayor to be saved. And I know I'm making a statement when I'm, when I'm saying those names. I haven't seen any testimony that makes me even wonder whether they could be saved. You track what I'm saying? But rather the opposite. So you can put whatever name you want in those. Okay? God desires for them what? To be saved. Now, let's extrapolate this even further, because who was Nebuchadnezzar? He wasn't an American, a Jew, from that perspective. God desires Vladimir Putin to be saved. Do you get that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God really desires? Well, God is using Daniel to make his existence known. Secondly, he wants him to know that he's omniscient. What does God know? Everything. What is everything? Everything. Psalm 139 says that God knows what you're going to say before you know what you're going to say. Before it's ever on your tongue, he already knows what you're going to say. In fact, he knows where you're at. Now, you can say that that's omnipresent as well. But he knows where you're at is the point. He knows where you're going to hide. If you hide in a closet, he knows you're there. He knows everything there is about you. And that's why the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, is a, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's why he could say about the people in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood that the, every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. And he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know not only that he exists, but he knows everything about him, even his dreams. And he can make what he dreamt known to someone else. Is that scary? He can make known. Now, he doesn't do this all the time, but he proved to us that he can, right? So those little thoughts that you might have and those little wanderings of thoughts that you have, Jesus says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. We can hide those things inside. But God said, I can reveal it to somebody else if I really wanted to. But it's exciting to me is it also reveals his compassion. Because God knew you had the dream that you were troubled. I think that Nebuchadnezzar, this is, I think, this, okay, this isn't in the Bible, that I think that probably Nebuchadnezzar already was thinking about the future. 
he was probably thinking about his place in history. I don't know if you ever think about that kind of stuff. You know, what's my legacy going to be? Who am I? How powerful am I? Whatever. I mean, we're not the president. We're not the king. You know, so, but sometimes we still wonder about that. Sometimes we even have delusions of grandeur, thinking that we're greater than we are. But Nebuchadnezzar, he had every right to have delusions of grandeur, right? Because he was that guy. And I think probably he's probably having some of those thought processes going on. And I think God in his, uh, his compassion for him comes and he's revealing what we're going to see about the future and about his place in the future. And that he's also then bringing his servant to him in order to give him the answer for that dream. Because he doesn't know the answer of the dream. He just knows that he has a what? A troubling dream. So God is compassionate, God. Fourth, that his sovereignty. That God then reigns over them all, because that's exactly what we see that Nebuchadnezzar gets out of this as a whole thing. That God is what? The God of gods and the Lord of the kings. He's the ruler of all the kings. Okay, And he gets all this, that God is the one who's overseeing all these things. You think that you are so powerful, but guess what? You're only a blip on the map. You're here today, and you're going to be gone tomorrow. You're going to have a kingdom. We'll talk about that in a moment. You're going to have an empire. It's glorious. But guess what? It's going to die. You're going to die. You're going to, you're going to go away. Somebody else is going to rise up after you. It's going to be another nation. Your nation is not even going to exist anymore. And there's going to be multiple. And they're going to be lesser than yours. Which means that a lesser kingdom is going to what? Take you out. Isn't that kind of sad? Okay? Last, his eternality. Because he's showing you, think about this, he's showing you what's going to happen when. In the future, but in the, the end, the latter days. He's going to give him, or we'll talk about this, right? But clearly you can see it. He gives him the, the four kingdoms and then a fifth kingdom and then a sixth kingdom, that's going to rise and never have a what? An end. It's going to go on. It's going to stand ulam. Kum ulam. It's going to stand perpetually. This God who's then speaking is eternal in nature. He's eternal from the past. He's eternal to the future. And all this is being presented. I mean, to, as I meditate on this, it's like God is just like overwhelming Nebuchadnezzar with who he is at this very moment. Then the second thing, then, is, again, to give him, then, the revelation of the future events to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I don't know why, other than Nebuchadnezzar may be interested in this. And so there are a lot of us who are interested in it, but God doesn't what? Give us this information, right? But he did it to, for Nebuchadnezzar. How does that make you feel? That sometimes you're, you're, you're really yearning for some information, some knowledge, and God chooses not to give it to you? But he gave it to who? Say it, Phyllis. A pagan king. Yeah, I saw the lips. I couldn't hear you, but I saw the lips go there. A pagan king. He gave it to a pagan king. You just thought this would have been Billy Graham, you know, in our day, right? That if there was some prophetic moment that was going to happen, Billy Graham would have got the information. And he would have decreed it to Ronald Reagan or to Jimmy Carter or to Bill Clinton or whatever, one of the, the presidents of the day, right? Not so. This is the pagan king who God chose to give the information. Isn't that kind of interesting? It's kind of like what happened with Pharaoh, isn't it? God gave Pharaoh the dream, but then he brought 
uh, Joseph into the situation, just as he's bringing Daniel into the situation, in order that Daniel might want to be promoted, which we'll see in a moment as well. So the next step of this, the description. Well, clearly, we, we read it, uh, Chuck read the description. We're going to talk about the interpretation in a moment. But what does he see? He sees an image, right? And this image is comprised of four different, um, well, five, but four primary metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the feet are going to be a mixture of iron and clay, okay? And then, out of nowhere comes a what? A rock, a stone, right? And it crushes the whole thing, okay? So that's what he sees. That's the description. He gives him a description. We're not going to waste time on that because we're going to come back and talk now about the interpretation of it, okay? So what does it all mean, okay? Well, first of all, we know there's the head of gold. And Daniel is very clear right off the bat that you, O king, are the king of kings and the lord of lords. You are the, you're the head. So Babylon is the first empire, okay? We have that on good authority coming directly from the word of God. Now, the rest of it um, is where we begin to extrapolate a little bit, right? Based upon history and based upon um, other parts of God's word. Again, at this point, um, you're going to hear some of this again. Um, when we get to Daniel chapter 7, and again, Daniel chapter 8, okay? Because all this plays out. And so, um, if you want to, like, you can even get ahead. So, when we, back in 2009, we went through the book of Revelation, and we spent the, the year doing it. I think it was 40 messages, okay? And we took a, a, a little interruption between the things that are and the things that will be, and we did a, a little discourse on Bible prophecy. Okay, and we spent a couple weeks going through the book of Daniel. Okay, and so in that time, I actually did all of these prophecies all at one point. Okay, because they all interrelate instead of them going chapter by chapter by chapter. And so you can go back to 2009, or you can get it on Spotify or wherever um, that kind of stuff. And uh, but if you go on the website um, to our webpage, you can actually get the, the sermon note sheet from that day as well. Okay, um, and and look at that. So, anyways, but all that there's more information out there. In other words, if you're if you're interested in this stuff, there's a whole lot of information out there, okay, um, that we've done. So, so the head of gold, that's Babylon. But then second after it, there's going to come this other nation that's what? How does he describe it? Inferior. It's inferior to yours. Now, this is a nice political statement. I mean, you're standing before the, 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 the king, right? And so, you, O king, are... Blah. You think you're something, but you're nothing. After you, there's going to come a really good king after that, you know? He doesn't say that. It would be a kind of a bad thing to say at that moment, right? But you're the king. You're the king of kings. You're the head of gold. But after you, there's going to arise another king. It's going to be inferior to yours. Now, what's interesting about it, it's silver, but note that it has two arms. And we know that the next nation that arose after Babylon, the one that took them out, was the kingdom of what? Medo-Persia. Okay? It's called Medo-Persia because it was actually comprised of Media in Persia, okay? That there were actually two kingdoms brought together. Media was actually the most powerful originally, and Persia came alongside it uh, in, in, the, in, in the merger, and, and Persia wound up becoming then the most powerful after that, okay? And we'll deal with that when we get to um, the Daniel chapter 7, and we talk about the, the bear, lopsided bear, you know, on, on one side. And so... Um, 
But anyways, it's going to have two arms, okay? Does anybody know, and we're going to talk about this again, I think it's probably chapter 5, when we talk about the handwriting on the wall. But does anybody know how Babylon fell? Who dammed up the river? Okay. Okay, so Medo-Persia dammed up the, the, the river, the Euphrates, okay, so that when they moved it to the side, okay, when they diverted it, then their troops were able to come in from the north and from the south, okay? But how did they fall? So that's all good. Did they do that in just an hour? They dammed up the Euphrates River in an hour? No. How, I mean, think about it. Think about any damming project, think about the Savannah River. The Euphrates is huge, okay? It's got to take, what, a, a period of time. Do you understand? And then, all of a sudden, the water's drying up. And then, you're going to have this whole army marching. They didn't, again, they go, and all of a sudden, they're in, in okay? They're, they're in there. It doesn't happen that way. What was Babylon doing? They were partying. They were distracted, but they were partying. They were having an orgy. That very night that they're having the main orgy, when we get to chapter 5, we'll talk about it again, that's the very night that Medo-Persia was entering into the land. Isn't this kind of cool? So, so Nebuchadnezzar is the king at this point. Okay? At that point, it's going to be Belshazzar who's going to be the king. Okay? And you have evil Merodach that's in between them and stuff like that. So there's, there's, there's time that's happening here. This isn't like tomorrow this is going to go on. Okay? This is later on, because Daniel... Remember, um, he's going to be there 70 years, okay, that Israel's going to be captivity. So that doesn't happen until another 60, 70 years later, okay? So what's hap- what he's decreeing right now isn't even a blip on the map for Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So even Medo-Persia, which could be like, oh, it's kind of out there, it really isn't on, 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 the, on the horizon right now. Does it make sense? But that's pretty simple. We can get there, right? It's the next one that drives everybody crazy because it's the next one. It's the belly and thighs of bronze, which we get so much information about from Daniel chapter 9, yeah, 9, well, more 10, into chapter 12. Details of what's going to go on with this kingdom. Well, what is this kingdom? Well, what's the kingdom that took over from Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. Um, The Persians extended the kingdom um, massively all the way up into Ionia. And you say, where's Ionia? Ionia is what you call Greece today. And so they went up into Ionia, and Ionia was, had a bunch of just little city-states at the time, okay, that weren't together as a nation. And, and so the Persians went up, and they, and they just ra- raised havoc up there. And so Philip, Alexander's father, so Philippi, okay, Philip, Alexander's father, was the one who brought all the city-states of Ionia together into a nation. He understood that the only way that they were going to withstand all these uh, marauding empires now, okay, world was changing from all these city-states to empires, that they had to become united as an empire. empire. And so um, Philip is the one who does this. And so we know then Alexander, his son, Alexander... The great, okay, who moves mightily. And again, we're going to talk when we get to Daniel 7, and you see the leopard with the four wings. That's really, 
it's so exciting. And I don't want to get into the, 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 the four wings and the four kings and just put it in your brain. that that's the, the book of Daniel gives such intimate details of the Grecian kingdom that drives liberals crazy. It has to have been written after Greece was an empire. It wasn't. Think about it. Medo-Persia is not even on the map yet. Or, well, they're on the map, but they're not. But Greece, at this point, is just a bunch of city-states known as Ionia. In fact, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say Greece. It says Ionia. Because it doesn't exist. It's Ionia. I mean, it means nothing. Ionia. I mean, Ionia? Ionia. Isn't that something? Not here, but later in, in Daniel is where it's going to talk about it. Okay? So you're going to have this next one come. And so the, the, the thighs and the belly of bronze, because they're able to just move mightily fast. Okay? And we'll talk about that more. Then you have this legs of iron. Okay? And when the legs of iron come, they're going to crush. They're just going to crush and stomp everything. Well, who comes after Greece? Rome. Rome does. What did Rome do? They stomped and crushed everything in their path. In fact, when you look at um, um, just like the, their destruction of Israel with the temple and then with um, um, the fortress in the desert. It begins with an M, I think. Masada, thank you. Masada. And um, how the, the, um, oh, the zealots and the... the, the the, the priests, help, oh, the priests, say again, Sadducees, Maccabees, Maccabees, fled to Masada. And then what Rome did was, um, when you, Marcia and I have been to Masada. Chuck, did you go to Masada? Steve, did you go to Masada? Did you go up the snake path at all? So in order to go, so the Masada is a mountain, okay, that's flat on the top, and they made it into like a small little city kind of concept. Anyways, a compound um, up there. But the only way to get up there is called the snake path. Only way to get there. And it's death to go up the snake path because you, you pshum, 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 roll rocks down, whatever. It just it ain't going to happen. So what Rome did was they took Jewish um, uh, slaves, um, they, they caught captives, and they made them make a siege ramp all the way to the top. They deforested everywhere around them. They cut down all the trees to do this. We look at the quote-unquote wilderness, and we think it must have been a what? A desert. But it's because Rome deforested it. There's a potential probability, actually, a high probability, that before Rome, the wilderness really was a wilderness. Yeah, a forest. So think of the Sahara in northern Africa. It's continually to grow. Well, how does a desert grow? Because the people around the forest continue to what? deforest around it and it's just extending the 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 desert okay so anyways rome was this this nation that just boom 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 but again like the arms with two there are two what legs why are there two legs because if people have two legs who are the the ones in um the 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 pods the monopods anyways (laughs) <laughs> so we're not monopods, we're, we're bipods. But why? Rome split. That's exactly right. They, they became large, and, and Constantine wound up moving the capital of Rome to Constantinople in Turkey. That's why it's called Constantinople, because it was named 
for Constantine, okay? And so you had the eastern part of the empire, and you had the western part of the empire, okay? Does anybody know, continue to know what happened? Now, if we were doing Revelation, I'd spend more time on this, but this is really kind of fun, so you can go listen to uh, on those messages if you want. But does anybody know how the, the whole history of Rome, how it happened? So they moved to the eastern, to Constantine, right, Constantinople, and the west winds up what? It winds up falling. Who's it fall to? Not Spain. The Gauls. The, the, the barbarians that came across the river. Okay? And so the Gauls come across the river. They're the barbarians. And again, they fall just like Babylon fell. They were partying. They were, they were um, uh, self-pleasure. Thank you, United States here. Uh, all about their self-pleasure, not worrying about their defense. And, and so they fall um, in the same way. But Rome still exists. So even though Roma has been destroyed, Rome, in a sense, still exists where? In Constantinople. Well, later, it winds up being reestablished as the Holy Roman Empire in those Germanic states that had come to destroy Roma, right? And the Holy Roman Empire then continued. Does anybody know how long the Holy Roman Empire existed till 1809 it's either 1806 or 1809 isn't it something think about that we think of rome being gone back 300 400 500 600 ad try 180 i'll say 1806 because that's the most conservative i think it might be 1809 when when philip disbanded it isn't that kind of something huh Again, go to the book, the study on Revelation, because that gets fun, because it talks about the seven heads, and there's actually eight of the beast. Five have been, one is, one shall be for an oligos. The five that have been were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The one that was, while John was writing, was Rome. After Rome, there would be one that raised up for just a short period of time. I won't go there. I'll let you think that through, but I think it's us. So... Anyways, you can move forward on that one. But it's Rome, okay? So Rome has this. But we're told then, after them, there would be this other time. So now, think about it. Most people stumble at this point because they try to make this into some kingdom that was way back in 100 AD or 200 AD or 300 AD. Why? Because each one of these do what? Play into the next one. Medo-Persia took over who? Babylon. Greece took over Medo-Persia. Rome took over Greece. So in your mindset, now you have one that's iron and clay. You think, okay, it's taking over Rome. Okay? But there's something that's telling me, uh, telling us, that maybe this may be a, a gap, maybe a delay. Now we're going to see this again when we get to Daniel 8, Daniel 9. Okay, that maybe there's going to be a gap that happens here. Okay, what is stated in the text to let us know that it probably isn't immediate? Immediate. In what? In those. In those days, in the latter days. Do you get it? that there's going to come a time then that 
in those days, in those latter days, okay, that there's going to be this kingdom that arises. That's going to have... Who's iron? Rome. Whoever that fourth kingdom is, we assume for a moment Rome, okay? It's going to have part of that Roman empire in my brain into it, okay? That part of the iron, then, is that part of the strength that that Rome had. Make sense? But it's going to be mixed with what? Clay. Clay's kind of brittle. Yes? I mean, you can break a piece of pottery pretty simply, okay? Drop a piece of iron, it's kind of just make me ding a little bit, but it's still there, but drop a piece of pottery and it's crushed, okay? And so we have this, this, this description that's going on, and you've got the, how they're going to join with the seed of man, and, and you can take this a lot of ways, and there are a lot of people who take it a lot of ways. We're not told specifically what that means, okay? But what I see it is, is very clearly that they're going to come and they're going to, they're going to deal with um, humanity, okay? And they're going to bring this together. And so there's a part where as the king kingdom moves forward, it moves forward into strength. But the minute you started adding um, tenderness, humanity, it sounds awful, from the human's perspective, you start to what? Have brittleness. Think about the United States right now. And I'm not saying this is the United States. I'm not saying this is the United States, okay? But think of the United States. You get rid of, so what's our, what is the strength, or what has been in the past, the strength of the United States? Military. But I'd say, be good, go, keep going there. Constitution, but what does the Constitution do for us? It declares what? Not freedom. Human, well, that's the Bill of Rights, the human rights. Say it again. Law. Law. It's the foundation of the country. It, it, it establishes justice. Law. Law, I mean, honestly, think about it. Justice is, 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 a, is being brought out by what? By law. Okay, by right. And so, so the strength of a nation is in its ability to have standards and things that it believes in. Does that make sense? Okay, justice. Okay, as you see, we don't have time to go through all this right now, but each one of these, it's one man, one man. Because coming through this, you have political likeness, you have religious likeness, and I want to submit to you that the same gods and goddesses of, of Babylon, way up there with the head, are still down here at the bottom. Ishtar gave birth to Tammuz in Babylonian mythology. Ishtar is where we get our holiday, Esther Monoth. It's Ishtar Monoth. It's a celebration of Ishtar, celebration of fertility. Okay, now that's why I like to call it a resurrection day. Okay, but it, it plays all the way through. Okay, Mary is called the queen of heaven in Christian mythology, otherwise, it's Catholicism. Okay? She's the, the mother of God, the queen of heaven, because she is Ishtar. That's why when you see a Christmas card that has, is from a Catholic point of view, you have Mary with a glow about her and Jesus with a glow about him, but you don't have Joseph with a glow about him. Because Jesus is Tammuz. He's the sun god who's given birth by Ishtar, the, the, the queen of heaven. 
And so you bring that over into Roman mythology, and you have Juno giving birth to Saturn. You bring into Christian mythology, and that's when you have Mary giving birth to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying I believe that Mary giving birth to Jesus is mythology, but in, in Roman Catholicism, they blended together. That also was Constantine, who began an amalgam- a process of, of blending together, okay, in order to try to, 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 to save his, his empire. He was blending together paganism and Christianity, okay? But the point is that you have this, this point of this um, strength and brittleness that's going to happen. So they have justice, okay? But then all of a sudden you start bringing in this point of, and I say humanity, and I don't mean it that way because true justice is truly humane, but uh, individual freedoms and liberties. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about an honor society in, in, a, in, a, in a freedom society or a lib- libertarian society, okay? And that um, the, in Christianity, we come from an honor society, if you would, from a point where obedience, okay, to now we're given liberty. But that's why Galatians chapter 5 says, only do not, don't use your liberty as an occasion for your flesh, but in love, what? Serve one another. So you have justice, but then all of a sudden, your justice starts to what? Weaken because of what? You're going to start giving all these people their, their liberties. That's, that's Bob's opinion. Okay? That's where I see how that plays in. Okay? I don't know. But the second thing we're told is it's going to be comprised of ten kingdoms. Okay? There's going to be ten toes. Okay? Ten kings, ten, ten, ten kingdoms. And again, I don't want to go into that right now. If we're doing Revelation, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Opinions are ranged out there that it could be the EU. I think potentially it could be the United Nations Security Council. Okay? Um, that's a possibility. There's a lot of possibilities in my brain Okay, that I'm not going to sit there and definitively tell you. And there's a lot of people who are going to definitively tell you that's this, 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 and this. I can't definitively tell you. Do you know when you definitively understand prophecy? After it happens. After it happens. And so there's a lot of people definitively telling you what all this stuff means. I've read somebody that the iron is the word of God. See, they don't believe any of this, and so they spiritualize the entire thing. Okay? But from the get-go, how do I know that this is literal? Say again? It starts with the head. Tell me more, John. Which is Babylon. Which is Babylon. Daniel very clearly gives him a literal interpretation. You, O Nebuchadnezzar. doesn't get a whole lot more literal than that, doesn't it? I mean, this is not a spiritualization. Well, king, you were watching, and, and there was this head of gold, and the head of gold, it kind of represented. No, it didn't say that. It's you. You're the king of kings. After you will rise another empire. So he's giving him a literal. Why all of a sudden at the end does it become what? allegorical it doesn't make figurative it doesn't make any sense this is a literal interpretation so there's gonna be a literal kingdom can i tell you specifically what that literal kingdom is going to be no because it hasn't happened yet there's a whole lot i got a whole lot of prophetic things going on in my brain of potentialities that i think are going on even revelation i don't sometimes i share some i might have shared some of them with some of you but i i don't preach on them and i don't because i don't know does it make sense i'm waiting i'm looking i want to be one who's of the day and I want to be praying and I want to be watching for when God reveals it to be a true fulfillment of his prophecy. So, the interpretation. We have then the feet of iron and feet of clay, but what comes next? Whew, boom, we got a stone, a rock that comes down out of nowhere. It's a stone that is made without human hands, okay? It's established in the days of these kings. Don't forget this, okay? Because again, this is again looking to the future, right? He's talking about the future. He says, so in the days of those kings, 
this is what's going to happen. So when there are ten kings that are joined together into some amalgamated kingdom, okay, that's when you can look forward to Christ coming, okay, who I believe is a stone, right? Because this next kingdom is going to come from nowhere. It's going to made without, be made without human hands, without human help. And so some look at this as the spiritual kingdom of Christ. I think there's a possibility that, that we are involved in this a little bit. But I, the rest of it is literal, so I take this as what? Still literal. Christ, we know, is going to reign on the earth for what? A thousand years. When is he going to reign? After Armageddon. What's going to happen at Armageddon? What's going to happen at Armageddon? The ten kings are going to gather together against them. Now, I don't know if it's the ten kings or how it plays out, but the nations are going to gather together. Does it make sense? And the stone's going to come down and what? Crush them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. We know that from the book of Revelation. Do you understand? He's going to come out of the clouds. It's going to, it's going to be an amazing thing. Okay, So he's not going to be established with human hands. It's not going to be... the Postmillennialism drives me bonkers. You say, postmillennialism? What's postmillennialism? I'm glad you asked that question. Let me explain what postmillennialism is. Postmillennium is that post means afterwards, okay? That the millennium will come in after we establish a godly world. We'll, we will bring in the kingdom and then Jesus will come and reign. That is like not biblical at all. I mean, at least when I read the book of Revelation, I see the wrath of God being poured out. I don't see Christians coming together and making this into a Christian world. I see Jesus coming and destroying the nations and then establishing his a thousand year reign in Jerusalem and saying, Zechariah chapter 14, 12 or 14, that every nation has to come every year. Do you remember when we went through the Zechariah and we studied, studied Zechariah? What do the nations all have to come for? They all have to come together one time a year to do what? Feast of Booths, which we know as the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, what does the Feast of Tabernacles represent? What, what did the Jews remember at the Feast of Tabernacles? Not just their wandering in the wilderness. Say again, God dwelling with them. It was that that God tabernacled while they were tabernacling. God tabernacled on the earth in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And so every nation has to come to celebrate that. Why? Because God's going to be tabernacling on the earth for a thousand years. And if they don't come, they don't get rain the whole next year. That's pretty severe, isn't it? You'd think you'd kind of know. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released again from the pit. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to deceive the nations one more time. And they're going to come against Jesus one more time. And Jesus is going to squelch him one more time. So, this kingdom, though, that Jesus is going to establish. So, is it established in you and I? There is, in a sense, where we have a spiritual kingdom that's in me, and it's eternal. It, it, it can't be quashed. Okay? But there's a part where Jesus is going to establish in a, a physical kingdom, in a new Jerusalem. He's going to do it in the old Jerusalem for a thousand years, and then there's going to be a new Jerusalem, and he's going to reign as God supreme. We... He will be our God and we shall be his people. And it will reign forever and ever. Kum ulam. It will stand perpetually. That's amazing to me. I can't comprehend it. But I know it's true. 
Because God's word what? Declares it. So, this leads us then into Nebuchadnezzar's exaltation. He is just overwhelmed. Wouldn't you be? I mean, think about it. You're killing, I mean, at this point, you've already resigned yourself to, to killing all these guys because they're a bunch of what? They're a bunch of liars, a bunch of fakes, a bunch of charlatans. You know, they've just been schmoozing on your dad and your granddad and all these other ones, getting what they want, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar says no. And so I don't know what he was thinking when he gave uh, uh, Daniel 24 hours. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd like to, I don't know about you, but I kind of read into that a little bit. You know, the, did he, he's like, yeah, yeah, God, fine. Yeah. Take your 24 hours. I'll kill you tomorrow. You know, I mean, whatever. And all of a sudden, here comes Daniel. And he gives it to him. I mean, I wonder how far his jaw dropped. You know? I mean, again, I think of Belteshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar. Daniel was Belteshazzar. Belshazzar, when there's the handwriting on the wall. And it says his loins were loosened. You know, I mean, just... he would. You know, we'll talk about that then. Anyways, and so... <laughs> I can't imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting there and this guy, I mean, I, his jaw's just, well, Daniel's just like telling him in his dream, you know, like quick, boom, 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 boom. And here, yeah, yeah. And here's what it means. Well, so how does he respond? First of all, he has this proclamation of Daniel's God, which is so, again, to me, Exciting. This is, I think, again, what this is all about. God did this whole thing just to bring Nebuchadnezzar to this point. Now, I know next week we're going to talk about <laughs> the image, and we're going to talk about the fiery furnace, and we're going to, and, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to scratch my head. How can this guy do such a thing? Because he's a pagan. Do you get it? God is working with this guy. He's revealing himself to this guy. And you think you know God, right? And you think you're saved. And how many times do you still stumble? Well, you got this guy, he's full of himself. Okay? But anyways, but his response to all this is, middle 47, says, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret. Your God is what? The God of gods. He's the one true God. Now understand, in in. In there is, he's the God of the Elohim, okay? And I don't want to get into distractions. There's a whole lot out there talking about who the Elohim are and all the false, um, the, the, the demons and um, the hierarchy of demons and all that kind of stuff. I don't think he's getting into this. I, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is talking about the, the demons and the hierarchy of demons and all like that. He's talking about false gods. That's what he knows them as, okay? He's talking about Baal. He's talking about Nebo. He's talking about all these false gods, right? And he says, your God is what? He's a God. He's God over them. I mean, all of them are just nothing. Because think about it. What did he just find out through all this? None of the gods of Babylon could do what? Explain the dream. Explain it. Yeah, or tell him what it is and then explain it. None of his gods were able to do it. They were all impotent to do this. They had no omniscience. But Daniel's God was able to do it. To get it again, that's what God wants us to be in this world. He wants us to be walking testimonies of what he is able to accomplish. 
But if I don't think he can accomplish anything, then what? He, no one else will. That's exactly right. Yeah, he was not going to, and, and, and nobody else is going to believe it either. That's what First Peter 3 is all about. Second Peter 3. No, First Peter 3. That be ready to give an account to everyone who asks you a reason for hope is within you. And as we've been studying that in, first, in Sunday school, it's going to be about suffering. That in the midst of all this suffering, that you can live a life that is glorifying God. And people are going to want to know what? Yeah, why? How? Why? How can you do this? Because there's a God in heaven who's sovereign over all the affairs of men. He's proven it throughout the ages. And at this very moment, he's allowing this for his purpose and for his glory and for his name to be known. And if it takes me being torched or my head being cut off in order for you to hear that God is true, then that's worth it. That's pretty rough. Secondly, we see then the promotion of Daniel. The promotion of Daniel. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Again, how old is Daniel? He's a teenager. He might be 20. Might be 20. It all depends on how you take the word, right? But he's somewhere in that, because he's been there maybe two years, maybe three years, right? So he's somewhere in that 17 to 21 year time frame. He's made the ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And the chief administrator over all the what? Wise men of Babylon, which may not be a whole lot since they're all dead. Anyways, um, but, but he's made. I mean, think about it. If you had any problems with this kid becoming your boss, at this point, he got a problem. Why? Because you couldn't do what he did. Right? You were all asked, and you couldn't do it. And he saved your life. Good. Yeah, in fact, that was his first, going back to last week, that was his first statement to Ariok. Stop killing the, the wise men. He didn't have to. He could have let them, he's still killing them. While he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar and, and Hobnobbin and all this kind of stuff, you know. Another hour later, there's another, you know, what, three or four wise men killed. That's all right, you know, get rid of the competition. He doesn't do that. Anyway, so he's promoted. But I think this is amazing to me. This ends it. But this is... It tells me who Daniel is. So from the beginning, he's thinking about others. At the end, he's thinking about others. He knows. He wasn't, look. God gave him the dream. But he wasn't the only one praying. He went home. Remember after he heard from Arioch what was going on? And he said, can I see the king? And the king gave him 24 hours or whatever it is, okay? He goes home and he talks to Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. And he lets them know. And so they together, what? Pray. I think it's kind of cool we don't, um, as we go into this week. Um, so we don't have Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. We have Steve and David and Chuck and me, right? And we're going to get ready to go away for a couple of days. And the primary thing that we want to do when we go away is pray. And we're going to be seeking God's face for, for his guidance and direction. We're going to talk about different things. We've got some things on the agenda for us to discuss from the the, the church's perspective. But the, the primary thing is, is it's a retreat to get away and pray, to, to seek God's face. Now, we can do that already, but there's a point where you as a, a group take time to pray. So twice a year, one of the things we like to do is have a week of prayer and fasting. Now, I know that can become like, uh, oh, it's only that week, you know. But no, the idea is it to be a teaching tool, okay, how the importance of prayer and fasting, but it's also a time for us as an assembly to come together and to take a whole week 
to seek God's face and his blessings upon our assembly. Not so we can be rich, not so we can be huge, but that we might do his will, that we might glorify his name, that we might make him known among the nations. Daniel recognized it wasn't just him who did it. It wasn't a one-man show. There were four of them. He just had the privilege of being the what? The spokesman. Do you get it? I just have a privilege of being a voice box. I don't take that as glorious from my perspective. It's a, it's a treasure that I rejoice in the Lord for the privilege of being able to teach his word. But I reckon this isn't my church. It's his church. He's brought together four over the years to, to help guide in the assembly, to under-shepherd. And so I don't want the glory to come to Babylon like Daniel. Daniel instantly thinks of Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, and he brings them up before Nebuchadnezzar and says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, but I'm not the only one. Actually, you, you're looking at me because I'm standing here, but honestly, Nebuchadnezzar, as I, as I live before you, there were three others. We were in prayer about this. God just gave me the dream. It's nothing about me. I just happen to be the one that God chooses to use. I mean, there's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who were talking to our God as well and whom God has used as well. And maybe at that point, Ashpenazer, whoever the, 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 the leader of the, the unit came in and says, oh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember? these guys, they don't eat your food. I mean, you, know, you should see what God has done for them. And da, 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 you know. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He promotes them as well. So as we conclude, again, the questions, right? Do you believe that God is all-knowing and all-powerful? Do you really believe that? If so, do you live your life as if you do? Secondly, do you believe that God has a plan and a purpose for the future? And again, if so, do you live your life as you believe that? As if you really believe that? Thirdly, do you believe that God is intricately involved in the affairs of your life, individually, specifically? And if you say yes, then I ask again, ask the question, do you live your life as if you do? We can say yes intellectually to all these questions. But the question is, really, do I live it out? How I live things out expresses what I really believe. And so is there a need then to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. We know that you alone are the most high God. There is no other God but you. You are the God of gods. You are the Lord of kings. And we want to give you the glory and the praise. Lord, help us to live our life in such a manner that we give you um, praise and glory. Help us to live our lives um, in a manner that expresses to everyone that we really do believe that you are all-knowing, that you are all-powerful that you are sovereign over the affairs of men and that you are intricately involved even in the affairs of our lives. May you be magnified in Christ's name. Amen.